Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 98th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good. Glad to be back after a little week hiatus. Um, so you and Aaron did a good job last week. So thanks for filling in, A.A. Ron. He did a great job. Yeah. He did a great he job. Does. Um, so he does. Excited. I'm excited though to have you back. Thank you. Oh, well, we almost just dragged the cord out, but it's okay. Um, excited to be back. Excited to be back. So, um, as always, we will take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 18th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 500 index is down 1.28% for the month and up 9.9% for the year. The Dow up 0.55% for the month and up 11.3% for the year. The NASDAQ composite down 4.7% for the month and up 3.2% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 2.3% for the month and up 12% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 1.27% for the month and up 8.5% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.02%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 1.66%. A um, couple of big things from the past week, Matt. The CDC says that fully vaccinated people do not need to wear face masks indoors or outdoors in most settings. And this was as of May 13th, which was last Thursday. Uh, here in Ohio, all health mandates will expire on June 2nd. So I believe there's only a handful of states that uh, still need to relax or fully relax their health mandates. So I think that's a good sign going forward. for Absolutely. Everybody. Absolutely. Um, a major pipeline on the East Coast uh, was shut down for several days last week due to a ransomware attack by hackers. Uh, the shutdown caused supply disruptions across the East Coast, and the owners of the pipeline actually paid a $5 million ransom uh, to the cyber criminals. Uh, the shutdown could cause supply disruptions for several weeks before things return to normal, so uh, expect you know, higher than normal gas prices. And, you know, this could accelerate because, you know, gas prices were already on the rise before this, right? Absolutely. Especially our friends listening out on the East Coast. I mean, a lot of those gas stations were completely out of gas. Right. They exactly. said it could take two, three weeks just to get this, the normal supply demand back to where it was before. Right. Right. And I think <laughs> it's just funny how this works because, you know, it was just last year where oil went negative. Right. No, one, you couldn't get rid of oil. And now because there's so much demand for it with the world opening back up again, airlines, tankers, you know, travel, just, you know, uh, you know, uh, going out again. Well, a quick reminder to listeners you know, as to why it went negative. So to explain this, people owned futures contracts that were expiring 
And meaning in, I'll buy this barrel of oil for you at this price in the future at this date. Yes. And you have to take delivery on that date. And what happened is, is one of our main storage facilities in the U.S. and Cushing, Oklahoma, was at like 97 percent capacity. So the rates to store oil there were so high that some of these traders had to pay somebody else to take their oil. Yeah. And that's how it went negative. Yeah. And it's interesting. And another thing that I'm hearing about this that I think is just silly, like everyone's blaming higher gas prices on Biden. And it's like he has nothing to do with it. You know, no, like it's just one of those things that, you know, people put their politics where it shouldn't be. So I just thought that was funny because I've seen a lot of that on social media. Like, thanks, Biden, for higher, higher gas prices. And it's like, listen, Gas prices have been going up since they were negative, you know, yeah. a year ago. I, that, so. in my, I would absolutely agree with that statement. Um, last but not least, April retail sales figures uh, came out on the 14th of May, and they came in flat for the month over month versus expectations of a 1.8% increase. Um, and excluding autos, retail sales actually declined 0.8%. So... Do you think, you know, people are starting to, you know, be more financially conscious of saving more like we saw the personal savings rate spike during the pandemic? Do you think this is going to be short term? Well, I think there's two factors at play. I think that's one of the factors, Mark. I think you will see an inherently higher savings rate for some time. Um, I think we're still double digits on the savings rate. In pre-COVID, we were like, what, 4%? Mm -hmm. The other factor I think that's at play is you are seeing consumers pull back with some of these inflated prices. So let's take lumber as an example. You know, I was on a, on a phone call yesterday with a client who was considering uh, finishing out their basement. And with prices today, that client's like, I'm going to wait. And I think this kind of took the market by surprise when these sales figures came out, because I think with short term, these inflationary numbers you are seeing the consumer pull back. And I think that's a good thing. You are seeing the U.S. consumer have some discipline. Yeah. And speaking of lumber, I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was Ben Carlson and Mike, Michael Batnick earlier this morning, and they threw out the idea, what if lumber was just too cheap for too long, you know, and it had to catch up with, you know, the low interest rate environment that we've been in for so long? Is that is that even in a thing that's out there that so in my opinion there's there's two factors at play one i don't think that's accurate because if you look at the prices that these lumber companies are paying people for their land to cut down the trees has not changed so it's not like the last couple of years these landowners are sticking it to the mills that raw data is out there and that has not changed I think the other factor at play is I've seen people do some channel checks at some of these like Home Depots and Lowe's. And if you go in, it's actually kind of marked when that wood was shipped. And a lot of this wood is not exactly new. And so the perception is if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's right now, they're not going to have anything. And that's not accurate based upon some of the channel checks I've seen. Mm -hmm. And even some of these pictures are showing wood that's been there since November. So I think you're seeing a factor where these prices are starting to make people not buy. And so uh, I, I'm not sure I, I fully buy into, you know, prices, inflated prices on lumber are here to stay. I'm this, I'm not there yet. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, 
Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the last week that caught our eyes, I'll let you start it off. All right, Mark, I got two really good ones. The first for listeners is an update on market volatility. By the way, I'm, I'm waiting for you the, the day that you say, I got two horrible ones for you today. You know what? <laughs> it might happen at some point. That might happen. I'm just kidding. Just <laughs> hey, like you never poke. know. I could pull a rabbit out of my hat. So this is from Bespoke Investment Group on May 13th. And before we continue, I need to explain to listeners, Mark, what the VIX, V-I-X index, um, or the, uh, the CBOE volatility index, what it is, okay? So the CBOE volatility index is a real-time index that represents the market's expectations for relative strength of near-term price changes of the S&P 500 index. Now, because it is derived from prices of the SPX index options in near-term expiration dates, it generates a 30-day forward projection of volatility. Volatility, or how fast prices change, is often as seen as a way to gauge market sentiment. And in particular, Mark, the degree of fear among market participants. So it's used, you know, to you know, put it in plain English for people, it's used as a fear gauge, right? So yes. if this indicator is going up, it's indicating, hey, we're probably in for a little more market volatility. And usually, you know, the volatility is fast and furious to the downside, right? Correct. Okay. And I've even seen some people say this, and this is more of a rule of thumb. This is not an exact method on the math. But I've seen people say when with the 30 day forward projection of volatility, whatever the number is, you move a decimal point over at a percentage sign. And that's tongue in cheek, the intraday volatility that could happen on any given day. And so I, if the VIX is at 20, that's indicating the potential for intraday movements of the SPX of 2%. Of 2%. Okay. That's a rule of thumb. That's a guideline that a lot of traders use. By no means does the math e perfectly equal out. Yeah, because we've seen the VIX around 20 for the past couple of months, and we haven't had that sort of volatility. Right. 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 I guess it's more of the the uh, chance that it could do that. Right? right. Yeah. And and again, I think this that what you said about volatility is a really, really good definition of it, because like we've talked about before, I think people misunderstand the relationship between volatility and risk. And volatility, you said, is how fast prices change. And I think that's a really, really good definition of that. Because risk, like we've talked about, is the permanent loss of capital, which is a completely different conversation from volatility. Absolutely. And remember, you know, when these stocks have their prices change, you know, every moment when the market is open, it is people voting with their money, the perception of what they think of the market and that specific company doesn't necessarily mean the underlying value. And let's pick the largest stock by market capitalization, Apple, in this example, doesn't mean that Apple's intrinsic value is necessarily moving that fast. Right. It's people making a judgment with their pocketbook. This is a very random because you just said Apple, but I just read a tweet yesterday that, or a couple days ago, that in Q1 of 2021, Apple iPad revenue alone, just the iPad, <laughs> did more revenue than McDonald's did in Q1 of 2021. That's, that's insane. That's baffling to me. That's baffling. Okay. 
They sell a lot of cheeseburgers, my friend. <laughs> they do. They do sell a lot of cheeseburgers. Okay, so I'm going to continue. So as equities plunged during the first three days of last week, Mark, the VIX predictability surged from under 17 to 27 in three days. I just caught you in a plunged and you didn't use it correctly. Did equities really plunge last week? The VIX. You said as equities plunged. Son of a biscuit. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> you were you were thumping on CNBC for that. Now now I'm now I'm getting thrown in. Oh, sorry, it. listeners. I love it. He's gonna hold this one over me for a while. I am episode ninety eight. I used plunged. As equities fell. As equities fell. So. <laughs> is a spike in the VIX really a sign of capitulation? The table below, which is on our show notes on all of our social media sites. So let's pause. Mark, how do uh, listeners uh, obtain these show notes? Yeah, so go to any of our social media pages, uh, especially Twitter, I think is going to be the easiest one. So um, at Jessup Wealth is our Twitter handle, um, and you'll be able to see all of these. And on LinkedIn, you should be able to see them as well. So this chart below shows the performance of the S&P 500 index following every three, every prior three day spike of at least 10 points. I could use spike there, right? Yeah, I, okay. I agree. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for checking. So um, a spike of at least 10 points in the VIX without another one in the prior three months, as well as how far the S&P 500 was from a 52 week high following the spike. So here again, you can see how high the S&P 500 has recently been versus the 52-week high even after the spike. So three of the last five spikes in the VIX have all coincided with the S&P that was down less than 5% from a 52-week high with the average distance from the high being more than 10. Mm -hmm. So what this does looking forward, forward returns for the S&P 500 have been better than average and more consistent to the upside when this type of occurrence has occurred. Now, there's about roughly 15 data points, Mark, and this goes back to 1990. The average return for the S&P 500 index looking forward six months was 9.68%. Why did I want to highlight this for listeners? Whenever we see these short-term um, shocks of volatility, it gets all the fear mongers out. Oh, it's the beginning. It, the market's going to crater. Mm -hmm. And when you really look at some of this raw data, that's normal. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean impending doom for the market. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Just because, you know, we get these bursts of volatility does not mean that there is a a market crash coming, you know, and if you and if you've tried to play that game, I can tell you for sure you've gotten crushed Absolutely, you know, when this stuff happens. So. Absolutely. And I thought it would be good to highlight for the listeners because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they see the intraday volatility calm down for in this example, a three month period. And all of a sudden, a big burst of volatility and people think automatically, oh, this is the beginning. I need to de-risk. And Mark, remind listeners, what's the toughest decision? after someone panic and they sell you gotta get back in at some point and how do you make that decision your guess is as good as mine and most of the time what i see in practice is they end up buying back in at higher prices 
Yeah. So or they go, don't. <laughs> or they don't. And so going back to what I said earlier, volatility is how fast prices change, which is completely different, as you indicated, mm -hmm. from risk. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, I think people use those two interchangeably, and they shouldn't. Correct. All right. One more. This may be a bad one. We'll see. Uh, this is um, interesting in regards to the NASDAQ. So also from Bespoke, and again, listeners, Bespoke provides us a lot of raw data on the market. So Bespoke, May 13th, 8.35 a.m., uh, research said over the last three days, the NASDAQ is down over 5% in just three trading days. And while that steep decline for such a short period of time, it's hardly unprecedented in NASDAQ's history. It happens. But what's unique, though, about this current decline is how steep the losses have also been in the U.S. Treasury market, in essence, the government bond market. While higher rates are bad for growth stocks normally, when you see a decline so large in the equity markets, especially the NASDAQ, traditionally bonds provide a cushion. Along with the 5% plus decline for the NASDAQ, long-term U.S. Treasuries are also down 2%, okay? Going back to 1987, there's been eight other instances where there's been three-day periods where the NAS was down over five, and U.S. long-term treasuries were down over two. So we have these in our show notes. I found them extremely compelling because it shows a graphical representation of the NASDAQ going back to 87 mark. It pinpoints those dates in red, and then it gives you, um, obviously, the table, okay? So the long-term chart of the NASDAQ below uh, shows where each of these periods occurred over time. And the table shows the subsequent performance of the NASDAQ for one, three, six, and 12-month periods. While there are definitely some scary comparable periods, 1987, the year 2000, the year 2008, there were also a number of other periods which were much more benign. Overall, while the ranges of the returns vary widely, the average and median returns were very good. Would you like to hear these numbers? Sure. All right. Three months. Average return for the NASDAQ looking forward, 13.26%. Six months out for the NAS, average, 25.6. One year out on average, 30.07. Am I trying to indicate that it's a slam dunk if the NASDAQ's going to go up at these percentages going forward? No. But what I'm doing is I'm once again highlighting raw data points. But just because you have a bout and the performance where the NASDAQ gets hit 5% over three days doesn't necessarily mean impending doom. Your comments. Yeah, I think, I mean, these are some big moves too. Like the one year down the road performance, I mean, you have, you know, in 1998, it was 103% to the upside. In 2000, it was 41% to the downside. In 2020, March of 2020, it was... 85% to the upside. So these are, I mean, these are big moves one way or the other. Yeah, there's not really anything that's calm. I mean, the calmest one is 87. It was down five. And then the closest number to that was down 16 in 2001. And then beyond that, they're just huge, huge figures. Yeah. So no, I think, I think this is interesting, but you know, you could see 
you know, some sort of volatility, whether it's to the upside or downside, I guess, is my takeaway from this. Yeah. And also the next year, the way to illustrate it visually is think of that. That spring is loaded. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And kind of, I guess, piggybacking off of that, my next uh, thing that that I had was from a blog post written by Ben Carlson titled Stock Market Returns Are Anything But Average. So I think this will play pretty well along with what you just had to say. Okay. Um, So Ben starts off by saying from 1926 to 2020, the average return for the U.S. stock market was basically 10% per year. Investing in the stock market would be way easier if you could simply bank on 10% year in and year out. Unfortunately, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. If stock market returns were consistent each year, there would be no risk. If there was no risk to investing in the stock market, the stock market wouldn't offer such attractive returns. If you want consistency over the long haul, you have to accept lower returns. And if you want higher returns over the long haul, you have to accept more volatility. The most returns over the past 95 years have fallen into the the 10 to 20% range. But it's worth pointing out how few returns fall within the range around the long-term 10% average. Yeah, so in essence, how many years did the index return actually 10% or around it? Exactly. So if we look at the calendar year returns, plus or minus 2% from the 10% average, so that's from 8% to 12%, how many calendar years do you think over the past 95 years we got returns between 8 and 12%? 20% of the time. Five calendar years. So that's around 5% of the time. Wow. And that's the average since 1926. He says, in fact, there have just been as many yearly returns above 40% as returns in the 8 to 12% range. And I think this just goes to show you, Matt, how lumpy returns are from year to year. That is a great point. Um, and just 18% of returns have been between 5 to 15% in any given year. So it's not uncommon to see large, large moves or tiny, tiny moves in the stock market up or down, right? And also, I think investors have, A, a short memory, and B, they think whatever the trend has been, that it should continue that way. So you go back to 08, people thought, oh, the market's going to keep going down, down, down. You go back to COVID at the end of March of last year, what are people thinking? It's going to keep going down, down, down. Yep. And when things are going good, you have the opposite thought process. And if the market takes a pause, like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? It should be going up. And I just think the investor psyche, with you kind of talking about the returns being lumpy, it's not perfect. They got to realize that. Yeah. Yeah, you have to, you know, and like I said, most of the returns fall in between that 10 and 20 percent range, but not a lot are in that eight to 12 range, which I found was really interesting. That's interesting. Um, Years that saw positive returns over the past 95 years, years were positive 74 percent of the time. I was going to guess 70. Yeah, I really was. Uh, years that saw negative returns, 26% of the time. So I would say that's a pretty damn good win-loss ratio. Don't you think? Heck yeah. Three-fourths. <laughs> um, years where there were double-digit losses, only 13% of the time. Years where gains of 20% of or more, 36% of the time. It's a pretty good so ratio. Yeah. Pretty good ratios. Yeah. 
A lot better than uh, than uh, casino companies. Yeah, exactly. Right, putting on red or black. Yeah. The only way he says to truly take the randomness out of the stock market is to have a multi-decade time horizon. Boom. Yes, this is easier said than done, but no one said this was easy. Caveats abound uh, with long-term numbers like this. Of course, we haven't taken taxes or fees or inflation into account. So, I don't know. I guess my question for you is we talk about it all the time on how people need to have a more long-term mindset, but how do we physically get people to implement that mindset? I think the big thing is letting them remind them that for most people, this money is not needed in three months, six months, 12 months. And that actual volatility in the market is normal. And I think the point that you put out there that what is the cost of these returns? What is the cost of a 10% return? It is the bouts of volatility which make most investors very uncomfortable. And as a reminder, if it were easy and consistent, the return premium would get sucked right out of the market and you might as well be buying a bond. Right, exactly. And it's like, look at, you know, for, I know everyone talks about Bitcoin these days, but, you know, Bitcoin, super, super volatile, but, you know, still has a really good annualized return because yeah. it's so volatile. It fits right? that profile. It's a high risk, high reward uh, type of, uh, of investment proposition. And right. use how I use the word risk because that is, it is something where it could easily go to zero. Right. It has that ability. Right. And so, you know, the volatility uh, setup of crypto and Bitcoin is just off the charts. Yeah. I mean, you're 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 getting on a roller coaster, baby. Yeah, exactly. And you can I mean, you could go to the moon, which things have, but it could also call, come crashing back down to Earth. Yep. Completely different profile of volatility. Um, the next thing I had was a tweet from Camille Kopenberg on May 7th. And Camille said, as a financial advisor slash planner, it is my job to both provide the mathematical outcome, but also recognize that peace of mind can outweigh the price tag. And I think, Matt, this is something that is extreme, extremely overlooked in, in personal finance, especially when it comes to buying a home. So everyone goes back and forth and over such small details on who pays the closing costs or a piece of furniture they want included with the sale of the house. And, you know, you hear stories from realtors about this stuff over the time. They're like, you wouldn't believe what they didn't sign the contract for because this small little thing wasn't included. Right. Yeah. That that piece of furniture had a sentimental value and they weren't going to say yes. Right. Where in reality, I think you need to look at buying a house as more than just an investment. You're going to be spending the majority of your time in this house with your family. You want to like where you're going to be living. So if it means overpaying for a house, then so be it. If the house is going to increase your happiness and create memories with your family that you're never going to forget, does an extra couple thousand dollars in the long run really matter? It doesn't. You know, well, I'm a very much numbers oriented guy. You know, if you could come up with a plan and a client can't stick with it, then the plan's not right for them. Absolutely. You know, so you have to take in the emotional aspect of things and and look at things from more than just a monetary standpoint, in my opinion. I absolutely agree with everything you just said. And I'm going to take it one step further. 
where I see the emotional um, um, drain hit a lot of people is on these second homes because they go into it with unclear expectations. And let me go just a little bit deeper. I um, had dinner with some friends on Friday night. Conversation came up about real estate. And um, the gentleman looked at me and said, so Matt, you know, when do you think a good time would be to buy a second home? I'm concerned about prices. And, you know, just give me, you know, your raw thoughts. And I looked at them and I said, here's the, here's the biggest issue with people. They tend to want to buy that second home for something they can enjoy, but it's also a quasi-investment. And the problem is, if you go into it with any sort of mindset that this is an investment, you're going to treat it that way. And you will, of course, be concerned about the price and where those prices go over time. And I said, however, if you look at it and say, I know this is, I'm going to park some of my wealth here, but you know what? The primary use of this is pure enjoyment. We're going to own it for the next 10 years. We're going to make a lot of memories with friends and family. Then does the price really matter? I said to him and he's like, well, I guess not in that case. And I said, well, the problem is most people go into those transactions where the primary goal is a return, not enjoyment. And that's where problems happen and the market turns. And that's why you have the flood of, of homes when the real estate market turns. And that's why I looked at him and said, if it's more of an investment related decision, you probably want to wait. Mm -hmm. If it's you find the perfect place and you're going to own it for a long time and the primary reason is not a return, then you buy it whenever you see the right one. Yeah. And you pay whatever price that you're financially able to do so. Yeah, and I think most people fall into the latter because I think most people don't have a second home. Um, and that, you know, you want a home that you and your family are going to want to enjoy. I mean, you're going to be spending so much time there that I don't think, you know, I think people are wasting their time or spinning their wheels over, you know, a couple thousand dollars difference where over a 30-year period, it's not going to matter. I'm with you on this. Um, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. Uh, this one comes from a snippet from a Barron's article written by Nick Fortuna titled the five types of retirement savers. Um, so while the importance of saving for retirement is often reiterated by financial advisors and the media, the reality is that not all people have the same pro, uh, proclivity towards saving and investing for the long term. A recent study by Artemis Strategy Group, which interviewed more than 3,000 consumers to understand their retirement savings behaviors, found that those saving for retirement can be grouped into five psychographic groups. Oh, this is going to be good. So the first one is purposeful planners, which is the smallest group at 12% of the people surveyed but the most financially successful with median household income of 125,000 and median household assets of 325,000. And these are the most likely people to have a financial plan, devote time to retirement planning, and often enjoy managing their finances. And in my opinion, Matt, it's not surprising that this group represents the smallest portion of the population surveyed. Um, you know, we just said it earlier on the show that if saving, investing and planning your financial future was easy, everyone would do it. Right. And the best way to increase your chances of success in retirement, I think, is to make more money during your working years. Yeah. You know, it's not fun. It's not sexy. Uh, it, it takes time to, to do the work and effort, discipline, financial mm -hmm. discipline. 
And I, it doesn't surprise me that it's the smallest group. Yeah. Um, the next was optimistic dreamers, which was 13% of the total, which skews toward women and younger individuals who tend to have much lower income, about $62,000 median household income and less educated. So 46% of that 13% total having a high school diploma or less and who may feel that retirement is far away, but still expect to lead active and rewarding lives of seniors with a basic understanding of retirement planning and saving for retirement, but little interest in spending much time on it. Next group was cautious preparers, which was 17% of all people surveyed, who tend to prepare for the worst and stick with tried and true, true, or excuse me, tried and true investment strategies, often have sizable knowledge about retirement planning, but may also rely upon experts when they have questions. I'm surprised it's only 17%. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I would expect, in my opinion, that's probably closer to 25%, my two cents. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, the next was ambitious risk takers, and this was 28% of the total. And and maybe it's because, you know, we're getting to the point where we have the aging population is, is phasing out and we have more younger people coming into this. Maybe that's an explanation for it. Yeah, you know, I think inherently with some of the um, older um, generations, you know, they've um, the tough times and those memories of that have stuck with them. They've lived through several lived through. And, you know, it's it's one thing to read about something. It's yet another to to live through it. Yeah, agreed. So ambitious risk takers are 28 percent of the total surveyed. And these people tend to be people who are educated, optimistic, they skew younger and tend to use and trust financial advisors, but also like to do their own research. Um, So, you know, I think that's, you know, young professionals that they don't want a second job of investing their money or managing their finances, but they like to be educated on that type of thing. Yep. Right. And the last group was uncertain strugglers, which is the largest group at 29% of the people surveyed who tend to have less formal education, more likely to rely on instinct, friends, and family recommendations for financial decisions rather than financial advisors, and are generally pessimistic about living comfortably in retirement. And again, Matt, this is not surprising to me that this represents the largest portion of the population that was surveyed. Uncertain strugglers are the ones who listen to family and friends to invest, in my opinion, in a brand new cryptocurrency without understanding how it works. Or they're the ones that are telling their, you know, they're listening to their friends and family where they say, go, go trade options. And you've never trade options. Before, Use margin. Right. And I think this is really, really dangerous to do something that you don't understand. You're just taking a recommendation from a friend or a family member who's not a professional. Again, this is no different from me taking legal advice from, you know, my brother who's in college right now. Yeah. And in the business school. Yeah. I'm not going to go ask him for legal advice. Right. Yeah. Um, So my question to you, Matt. I'm not giving you LASIK in the back lot after this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm not performing open heart surgery. Yeah. Right. Um, You know, so my question to you is this. How do we get more people into the purposeful planners group and more people out of the uncertain strugglers group? What I would say, Mark, is people first have to take responsibility for their finances. I think a lot of people in this category tend to ignore it 
because there's they have to be making purposeful decisions that sometimes require discipline. And if the analogy is, well, if I don't go to the doctor, I won't have to worry about how bad my health profile really is or how bad my cholesterol really is. And I think in regards to finances, people are unwilling to really tackle that topic. And they might be a lot better off than they actually think or vice versa. And I think it's the fear aspect. So yeah. if I just ignore this, but I think how I answer that question, got to take ownership of this. And whether that's you doing it on your own or seeking out the advice of a professional, take ownership, tackle it, have a timeline, create a plan. That is how you get out of that rut. Yeah, I agree. And I guess I, I just, you know, it's crazy to me that, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, toot our own horns here about, you know, professionals in our industry, but it's crazy to me that you go to doctors when you're sick. You go to, you know, attorneys when you need legal help. You go to accountants when you need tax help. But for whatever reason, when it comes to financial planning or budgeting or investing, people just have this stigma that they can do it themselves. I think there's also an aspect of embarrassment, yeah. you know, that, you know, I, I made these decisions uh, on paper. They might not be as good. And I think they're just concerned about being embarrassed or talked down to. And I would say that more and more people in our industry are doing that less and less. Yeah. You know, and that and that's one of the things I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten more OK with asking for help or, or realizing that I don't have the knowledge to do X, Y or Z on my own. And, you know, and I think and it's given me a lot of comfort at, in just like realizing that and just saying, hey, Mark, it's OK if you don't know how to do this. Just go ask someone for help that does know how to do this. Yeah. And, you know, how I frame the conversation is, you know, when I'm meeting with a potential client. And, you know, I'm starting to uncover that they might have made some some poor decisions financially up until that point. I get ahead of it real quick in those conversations. I look at the person in the eye and I say, we need to throw everything on the table. I need to fully understand your situation because I'm not here to judge you for everything that's occurred in your past. What I'm here to do is draw a line in the sand and we are going to have a different future going forward in order for us to have a solid future going forward. I got to know all this stuff, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, one of the things I say in, in prospect meetings all the time, you know, you have people that are like, you know, if I would have known this and did this 20 years ago and I'm like, listen, hindsight is 2020. You can't go and change the past, at least yet. You can't go and change the past yet. We can only make changes from this point forward to make sure we don't make those same mistakes going forward. Bingo. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. So um, that will do it for the 98th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Matt, if you don't have anything else, we'll leave it there for the week and we will be back with listeners on episode 99 next week. Sounds great. We'll see how many emails I get in regards to the word plunge. It should be interesting. My yeah, inbox I hope people give you crap for that. beefy over the next 24 hours. Have a good weekend, listeners. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.